Let's read together from 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 45. Then David said to Goliath the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand." When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell onto his face on the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then a couple of chapters to 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 5. 1 Samuel 18 and verse 5. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war, set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servant. As they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and songs of joy and musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Let's welcome R.T. as he comes to minister. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to be upon every mind in this place in order that their perception of what I say will be understood and applied as you intend. And upon my tongue that I'll be cleansed, that I might be your transparent vehicle to say everything you want said, nothing you don't want said. Let this be a life-changing word. Let it be an encouraging word. And may it be a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you like to be a man or woman after God's own heart? What will be the signs that you are a man or a woman after God's own heart? Now, if you've been here over the last several months, you know that I've been dealing with the issue of defining moments of some of the great people in the Old Testament. And today, this is being our last time together, we look at David. 
Now, you might have thought that David's defining moment was when Samuel poured the oil upon David and the Spirit of God came upon him from that day forward. Uh, But that is not what turns out to be his defining moment. Now, you may recall from a previous time, the person least likely to be chosen would be David. That is in the eyes of his father, Jesse. Jesse underestimated David. Uh, In any case, David was the one that God had chosen, and Samuel poured the oil upon him, and from that moment, the Spirit of God came upon him. Now, a few days later, Jesse asked David to check on his brothers who were in a battle with the Philistines. And uh, it turns out that when David goes to check on his brothers, it led to David's defining moment. Because the Israelites were at war with the Philistines, and on this occasion, the Philistines had a giant, probably, as best as we can figure out, nine feet six inches tall. And the Philistine would come out and challenge anybody among the Israelites to fight him. And whoever wins, that would be the way the battle would go. And all Israel was scared to death because nobody could match Goliath. Well, David now appears on the scene to check on his brothers. And he notices how afraid everybody is. Scared to death, his brothers, everybody. And David can't believe it. It's as though he says to them, whatever is the matter with you people? This Goliath is an uncircumcised Philistine, and you're afraid of him? Well, that did not set well with his brothers, and they began to go for David and say, how dare you, you conceited thing, talk to us like this. Well, now, here's a good question for the theological students. What do you suppose was the cause of David seeing Goliath as an uncircumcised Philistine? Was this the result of the anointing that came upon him when Samuel poured oil on him? Or would David have said this even if Samuel had not poured the oil on him? Well, it's a good question. All we know is that David now goes and checks on his brothers And uh, he could not have known that this would lead to his defining moment. The interesting thing about a defining moment, you don't know 10 seconds in advance that it's going to be that. And yet, when it happens, you realize something significant just took place. And yet, not that you perceive all the implications, but this is what happens. You never know when this will happen. I was thinking as I prepared this sermon today, uh, several months ago, as a plane flew into Newark, New Jersey, and as it it just pulled up to the gate, and I got up out of the seat and uh, reached in the overhead uh, to pull down my suitcase, in that second, I I wasn't thinking about anything. In that second, 
the Spirit of God came upon me and I had an insight, a theological insight that was transforming. I haven't been the same since. I wasn't anticipating it, but it just came like that. And this is what is so thrilling. You never know when or where you could be walking into Sainsbury's, getting on a bus. It could happen here. But suddenly, something takes place. The prophet Zechariah raised the question, who has despised the day of small things? That's a little hint for us never to underestimate anything going on, anything that could happen, because this could be the day. And you can live with this kind of expectancy hour after hour. Well, now, I want us to see four things prior to David's victory over Goliath. We're talking about a man after God's own heart. Now, you need to know that David was an example not only of this special anointing, but he was an example of what theologians refer to as common grace. This is a concept that John Calvin spoke of. He called it special grace in nature. It's nicknamed common grace, given to every human being that ever lived. The light that lights the true man, the, the true light that lights every man that comes into the world from John chapter 1. Everybody has this touch. It is not what saves you. has nothing to do with whether you're saved. But all people have it. Now, we call it common grace, not because it's ordinary, but because it's given commonly to everybody. So everyone here, you've got a touch of common grace. For example, your talent, your gifting, your IQ, what you're good at. And this isn't uh, particularly uh, related only to an individual, but in the whole world. It is what keeps the world from being topsy-turvy. Have you ever wondered why are things not worse than they are when you consider the evil of man? God is in control. Thank God for traffic lights or there would be chaos. Thank God for firemen, hospitals, policemen, doctors, nurses. All these things are benefits to all humankind. And so, one way to know the way you should spend your life is to be as objective about yourself as you possibly can. Ask, what is it I'm good at? And you narrow all of your gifting down to what you know you can do, and it can be very humbling to know what you cannot do. As you've heard me say, I would never be asked to be professor of mathematics at Imperial College. I'm horrible at it. It's pitiful. It's embarrassing. But what I am good at, God has used me as one who, for some reason, just loved theology, the Bible. Uh, I was on the debate team in my hometown in Ashland, Kentucky. I learned how to speak publicly. All these things were God's way of shaping me. Well, now, what are these things that preceded this victory? Well, when I talk about common grace to David, 
he had certain giftings, and one of them was he was brilliant with a sling. Now, when we get to heaven, we'll find out what kind it was. But the best we can figure out, imagine something like a leather strap or the equivalent, two or three feet long, and a pouch at the end. And he would put a stone in this little pouch and then wind it up like this until it goes so hard that at the right moment, he lets the sling release that rock. And if he were standing on this platform, it would be no trouble for him to hit that clock that I'm looking at right now. By the way, I bet you're glad that I look at the clock when I'm <laughs> preaching. This is how I quit on time. Uh, in fact, I don't have to quit till 2 o'clock this afternoon. But you all are just thrilled to bets for that. He could not only hit that clock. David was so good, he could hit the 12 at the top of the clock just like that. So he knew he was good at this. Well, now, what was it about David? Things that you ought to know about this particular man after God's own heart. And maybe you would identify with some of these. For one, as I've just hinted, he was underestimated by his own father. You may recall, Samuel comes to the house of Jesse to anoint a person who's going to be the next king. And David isn't even told that Samuel is coming to dinner. Samuel was a legend in his own time, but so underestimated uh, David was by his own father that he's not even told. And so Jesse has all the sons pass by Samuel, and Samuel said, I don't know what to say, but the Lord's anointed is not here. And Samuel pressed Jesse, are you sure these are all your sons? Well, yeah, we've got one more, but you don't want him. He's just, he's with a sheep. He's, he's just a kid. It couldn't possibly be him. Well, do you mind, says Samuel. They bring him in. He's the one. And the point being that the man after God's own heart is a person his own dad would not have chosen. Is there somebody here like that? Your own parent did not respect you, did not think you would amount to anything? Is there someone here, you were told by your parent, you will never amount to anything. You've got nothing. And they run you down and you grow up with an inferiority complex and you're needing the affirmation of an authority figure. And all of us need the affirmation of a strong, loving father well, it's hard to say to what extent David didn't have that. All we know is, all we know is he certainly was underestimated by Jesse. He wasn't even given the respect to say, David, come in from the sheep. You want to meet Samuel. David would not have even known. And perhaps you know what it is like to have parents that never affirmed you. And you grew up thinking you can't do anything. But here's the good news. If you're a man after God's own heart, if you're a woman after God's own heart, God will find you. He knows where you are. He knows your address. He knows when you were born. He chose the time of your birth and who your parents would be. God knows where to find you. And God found David. 
The second thing about what David experienced is sibling rivalry. That's when your brother or your sister or more than one, they're jealous of you. And you grow up with this kind of thing. And uh, they can affect you as you grow up. The way you are referred to, they can laugh at you and it will affect you. The wonderful thing is, Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, has never forgotten what it was like when he was on this earth. We are told that he was tempted, tried, tested at all points like we are, without sin, and even though he's at the right hand of God, he's never forgotten what it was like. Therefore, when you go to him with your weakness and you pour your heart out and you say, this is my problem, and other people might laugh at you or reject you, but with Jesus, guess what? He's actually touched with the feeling of your weaknesses. Did you know that Jesus also experienced sibling rivalry? There was that time in the Gospel of John when Jesus' brothers, who were jealous of Jesus, said, you know what you ought to do? You ought to go to Jerusalem. Really? Why should I go to Jerusalem? Well, say his brothers, anybody who wants to be a public figure, you ought to, you ought to go to Jerusalem. That's where you need to go. As if Jesus was aspiring to be a public figure, but it was their way of putting him down. Yeah, you want to be a public figure. We know about you. Get to Jerusalem. Just to let you know, Jesus experiences it with you when you're hurt over the way someone close to you talks to you. Well, enter David. And he goes to check on his brothers. And he finds them all terrified about Goliath. And David is astonished. He's appalled that they would be afraid of him. Don't you know? He is an uncircumcised Philistine. How dare you let him bother you? And do you know, the first thing we hear is that Eliab, David's oldest brother, who was passed over for the anointing, he thought he would get it. Now Eliab, he looks at David and says, we know about you. You are conceited. You've just come to uh, check us out. We know how wicked your heart is. And said, by the way, who did you leave with us? A few sheep you keep care of. Anyway, to make David feel inferior. And he says, we know you're just conceited. And so David just replies, well, now what have I done? Can I even speak? All this going on just seconds before David would come into his defining moment. And it could be that you know the feeling of having somebody accuse you of being conceited, accuse you of being wicked, and they don't really respect you, but they're wanting to bring you down. It could happen just before God wants to do something extraordinary. The third thing, David was underestimated by the establishment. 
Now, what he does, when he finds out how scared everybody is, David, cheeky thing, 17 years old, goes up to King Saul and says, Your Majesty, I'd like to have a go at Goliath. What do you suppose King Saul would think? Little 17-year-old says, Let me have a go. Well, the king looks at him and says, You can't do that. You are just a boy. And this giant has been a fighting man since his youth. Well, now, that could have caused David to say, Oh, sorry, I should have known better. But it's an example how people in authority can underestimate you. Perhaps there's one here. You were passed by for a promotion. You were underestimated by those who could have promoted you or exalted you. Maybe your pastor, maybe somebody important in business. How many here have ever heard of G. Camel Morgan? Anybody here ever heard that name? Well, not many, but at the beginning of the 20th century, he was a towering figure. He was minister of Westminster Chapel for many years. G. Camel Morgan is the person who gave Westminster Chapel its international reputation. Well, did you know he applied to be a minister in the Methodist Church. But the Methodists said of young G. Camel Morgan, he did not have the makings of a preacher. And yet he became one of the great preachers of the 20th century. How many here have ever heard of Charles H. Spurgeon? Know that name? The great Spurgeon? Did you know that Spurgeon applied for uh, enrollment at Regents Park College? And he was rejected. Regents Park College was in London. It moved to Oxford. They kept the name Regents Park, which is confusing. People think it's in London, but there is a Regents Park in Oxford. That's where I went. But it's a skeleton there covered. They don't like to be reminded that they rejected the great Charles Spurgeon. And perhaps there's someone here. You've been just pushed to one side, and they just say, boy, you don't have it. Don't even think about it. But... God is on your case. And so, King Saul says, no chance. You're just a boy. You can't do that. But David didn't give up because common grace, he developed a certain ability. And would you believe it? He said, listen, I keep care of sheep. And one day a lion came and carried off the sheep and I went and struck it and pulled the sheep from its mouth. I seized the lion by its beard. 17-year-old boy, I seized a lion by its beard. And I rescued the sheep. And I'll tell you another thing, Your Majesty. I did it with a bear as well. I rescued a sheep from the paw of a bear. Well, King Saul says, okay. If you want to have a go, you can do it. Go for it. And the Lord be with you. It shows the perseverance of David. And perhaps someone here, you've given up because someone said you don't have what it takes. But 
there's something burning inside of you and you know that something is on your heart, don't give up because God has put that desire there. He will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. But there was a fourth thing that David needed to learn. And this is not unimportant at all. It's, it means when you learn to be yourself. Is there anybody here like that? Your problem is you don't like yourself and you try to act like somebody else. Well, here's what happened. As soon as David talks King Saul into letting him have a go at Goliath, Saul says, well, you can't go like you are. We've got to get you, on, uh, you armored up and be all ready. So imagine this. We know that King Saul was something like six feet, six inches tall. That was tall then, it's tall now. David, according to all Israeli legends, was a man of very small stature, perhaps five feet, five feet, two inches tall. He's just a little guy. Not only at age 17, he's probably reached his height by then, but he never was tall. He's referred to as little David all his life. Well, King Saul, six feet, six inches, takes his armor off and puts it on David. And so imagine this 17-year-old, he's walking around. (laughs) He says, I can't go in these. I'm not used to them. So he has the courage before the king to take off Saul's armor and realize that God has put this on his heart for being just like he is. If I were honest with you, it's almost embarrassing for me to admit, it's too late now, one of the hardest things I've ever had to learn is to be myself. I've often thought, If I could start all over again in 1977 when I first went to Westminster Chapel, I think it could have been a better ministry over the 25 years. I just never felt I came up to standard. I was intimidated by the great G. Campbell Morgan, Mark Lloyd-Jones, and now me, boy from the hills of Kentucky. I never felt adequate. It's only in recent years that I've had the liberty to be myself. I didn't have it in those days. It doesn't bless me to tell you that. But I tell you because this might encourage somebody here. God made you like you are. When he made you, he threw the mold away. And so oftentimes, a young Christian will try to be like an older Christian. Now, some of that is good. But then there's, this, uh, there's a point at which you realize you're yourself. You don't have to have their gestures or pray like them. I remember back in Kentucky, <laughs> uh, our pastor, when he would pray, he would say, Oh, Lord, we come to you. And you could hear all these young people saying, Oh, Lord. <laughs> now, you don't need to be anybody else. And just a word to the m- members of IBIOL, or the members of the staff, Chris, I know you want to be like Colin Dyer. <laughs> Give it up. You ain't no Colin Dyer, but you're Chris. He's got a plan for you. 
what will happen is, you know, when you imitate another person, you never capture their real genius. You don't, you think you are. There was a preacher in Texas, a famous Southern Baptist preacher. And he had an eccentric habit that when he would preach, his left hand would come up over his ear like that. Nobody knew why he did it, but he'd just keep on preaching. Yeah. They made that man professor of preaching at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's where Joel Gregory taught. That's where he went. They, you could always tell one of this man's students. <laughs> there were young guys all over Texas and Oklahoma when they weren't sure they were doing a good job, left camera come up over the ear. <laughs> they didn't know why they did it. They thought it was the anointing. I told that story, just as I've just told it to you, at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I was invited to do some lectures on preaching there. And on one of the <laughs> days I was preaching, I told that story. And I was doing it partly to see who was this guy. I could find out more information. It, it worked. An old professor came out of the gallery at the end of the service. He said, well, I know who you're talking about. I said, tell me one thing. Why ever did he put his left hand over his ear? He was hard of hearing. <laughs> Try it. Look, right now, I can hear my voice better when I do this. And that's the only reason he did it. They thought it was the anointing. No, it was just to hear himself. You never capture a person's genius if you try to imitate them. Be yourself. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones told me about this preacher in Wales years ago. He had an eccentric habit. As he would preach, hair would get down in his face and eyes, and, and instead of pushing it back with his hand, he would just kind of shake it back like that. <laughs> Whoever he preached, he would do that. And he said there were young preachers all over South Wales that would shake that head. <laughs> And one of them was even bald-headed, and he, too, would shake that head. <laughs> David had the courage to be himself, and he knew because he was good with a sling. So what he did... He took five stones from a nearby brook. I've been to that brook if they told me the truth. They said, this area is where David fought Goliath. And sure enough, there's this little brook there. <laughs> I went and found a little smooth stone. I took it home as a souvenir. David took five, being sensible. And uh, he puts it in the sling. And the next thing we know is that now David is operating under the new anointing. Common grace taught him he could use that sling and kill Goliath. But now there was something else that kicked in because the anointing of Samuel is on David. 
And David was given an oath-level assurance. Let me explain what that is. In Matthew eleven twenty four, Jesus said, Whatever you ask for in prayer, that will, that, believe it, you have received it, and it will be yours. Now, this is an amazing verse. Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. What is he talking about? Well, it, it's not working yourself up into a frenzy. And I know sincere people have just said, I believe it, I believe I've received it, I believe I've received it, I believe I've received it, and you're talking yourself into it. That's the flesh. What this means is when the Holy Spirit gives you an oath-level anointing, the Greek word, I've used it in this church before. Some of you know the word pleroforia, full assurance, oath-level anointing. When, when you pray, you know you've heard. I've had that happen two or three times in my life, so don't think it happens every day. You know as soon as you pray for it, it's going to be yours. That's what is going on now with David. He knows that he's going to kill Goliath. And so here's what happens. The Philistine has David is coming closer and closer. He looks over at David and he saw that he's only a boy. And he says to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Listen to David. You come against me with a sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And so now, as the Philistine gets closer to David and David gets closer to him, David knew that all he needed to do is get one little inch on Goliath's forehead because his head armor came down to about here, right here covered his eyes, but there was just about an inch right there. And David knew he'd had practice before. And so he takes that sling and gets it up to a speed. It's like the speed of that Australian this week who broke the record for the fastest servant Wimbledon, 147 miles per hour. What David's going to do is have a little stone that will go like that right into that spot and immediately Goliath falls. And so it is said, David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand. And so that was a moment that certainly would change David's life. Well, you could make the case it was the best thing ever to happen to David. But you can also make the case that it's the worst thing ever to happen to David. Now, at first, 
Everybody's thrilled, including King Saul. He is elated. He can't believe his luck that this could happen. And so he makes David an officer in the military. And so now they're coming back. And with the men returning with David who killed the Philistine and King Saul coming in to get all the glory, all is going fine until, oh dear, the women came out from all the towns <laughs> with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with tambourines and lutes, and they sang. Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Not wise in front of a king. Immediately, Saul was angry. Those women didn't know that Saul had an ego as big as an elephant but that inside he was insecure. We're told Saul was so angry, he said to himself, they credited David with tens of thousands, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. That was David's defining moment the best thing that ever happened to him, yes, he was used to defeat the Philistine in a major battle. It gave him instant rapport and affirmation of all the people. It led him to marrying Saul's daughter. He had a wonderful friendship with Saul's son, Jonathan, and it's what led to his being the next king. But it was the worst thing that ever happened to David. From that moment, Day and night for 20 years, it's so sad. He lived in perpetual fear. He lived in hiding day and night, running from King Saul just to keep alive. He did bizarre things to stay alive as feigning madness before King Achish. He lived as an alien with the Philistines, and at one stage his own men were turning against him. The friendships that start out so well they say friendships go through three stages, lyrical, disillusionment, reality. At first, you've met your best friend, and it's so wonderful, you can't say anything good enough about him. And then something happens, you're disillusioned. But then eventually, reality. Paul had this with the Galatians. They loved him, and then they turned against him. The Corinthians, they love Paul, but then they turn against him. You need to know, people are people, and they will disappoint you. Well, it goes to show that when you serve the Lord, it starts out and you're on a high, and it's so wonderful. The day you're converted, the greatest day of your life, and sometimes you'll have a honeymoon, you think, this is marvelous. This is marvelous. But one day you find out it's not so marvelous. You see, you need to ask the question, why should a person become a Christian? Let me tell you right now, 
in case you didn't know, why a person should become a Christian. Not because it's going to make you happy. As a matter of fact, the man I baptized first in Westminster Chapel, he was an American Los Angeles Jew. His name was J. Michaels, gloriously converted. After a year or so, you know what he said to me? J. Michaels said to me, he said, R.T., before I was a Christian, I was a happy man. <laughs> Not complaining. He's stating a fact. His wife didn't convert. His family didn't like what he had done. And he was lonely. And so don't let anybody tell you the reason you should be a Christian. You're going to be happier because you may not be. Why should anybody become a Christian? I'll tell you. Because there's a heaven and because there's a hell. And when Jesus died on the cross, the blood that dripped from his hands, from his forehead, was the most precious commodity in the history of the world, more precious than the diamonds and gold of South Africa. That blood, because it cried out for justice. And when Jesus said just before he died, it is finished, he knew that the blood atoned for the sins of the world. There's a theological word here. Some people are ashamed of it. It's a long word, and it's a word you won't hear when you're in Sainsbury's next. It's called propitiation. It means that the blood of Jesus turned God's wrath away so that the moment you give up any hope of saving yourself by your good works, but put all of your eggs into one basket, the blood of Jesus, you know that you have been saved from the wrath of God. I've been thinking lately, I've said it one other time. It's a dream of mine. I wish just once before I die, just once, that I could preach where the people I'm preaching to could experience God's wrath even for 30 seconds. I don't have that anointing. I can't play games with you and say I can turn it on. Never happened to me. I would love it to happen once before I die because if you just for 30 seconds experience the wrath of God, you'll know how awful it is. It's so horrible. But people don't believe in it today. But were the spirit to come down, you would know. People who say, well, if there were no heaven, there were no hell, I'd still be a Christian. Utter nonsense. You become a Christian because Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And you need to know from the first day, you're not doing it because it's going to make you happy. You're doing it because you can have peace with God and peace in your heart to know that you go to heaven when you die. I'm going to give you a prayer to pray. Nearly all of you have heard this prayer before. And nearly all of you have prayed it. 
but there may be one or two people who haven't heard it and haven't prayed it. Now, I've had people say to me, well, R.T., when you pray that prayer, I always pray it. That's all right. That's all right. But I'm now addressing those who've never prayed this prayer. And if you would pray this prayer in your heart, know that God will hear you. You don't need to say it out loud. Here goes. Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. As best as I know how, I give you my life.